0: Acts chapter 11, as we consider this text, which was read for us earlier. I believe you have the passage in Revelation there in your bulletin. You can study the context there, which gave us that last song. The term Christian has been applied to everything from greeting cards, and jewelry to nations and empires. We have Christian bookstores with Christian action figures. We know of Christian music and Christian education, Christian movies, Christian churches, Christian athletes, Christian politicians. The adjective for Christian has been applied to all kinds of nouns, and often we're left to wonder what the term means to those who are using it. But never is the term more rightly used than to describe a person who is following Christ in repentance and faith. A person who is learning from and imitating Jesus Christ. Christians. Perhaps no other word in human history has been more definitive of a people group. Oh, there have been times we've defined people as social elites or outcasts, but Christian applied to them both. Rich and poor, slave or free, but Christian applied to them both. Christian is a term that has been used, and rightly so, to cover all kinds of people in all ages of history. But today, we see the origin of this widely used descriptive. And it's not just a history lesson to see where did that word come from, but it's also an invitation, a challenge. We need to be asking ourselves, are we truly living up to this name of Christ which has become such a common word, Christian. Do I look like the first followers of Jesus who were given this name? And in our times in which we live, more and more we will have to draw on Acts 11 to rightly define the word Christian. Because what we see in Acts chapter 11 that led the outsiders to call those Christ followers Christians, what we see there as the standard for that nickname is not the standard being applied in many uses of Christian today. People may claim this name, they may claim, use it as an adjective to define themselves or their organization or even what they call their church. But it's only true if it is used in the way that we see here in Acts 11. It's a great story. Kind of takes us back a couple of chapters to the persecution of Stephen. We saw there the church was scattered. And now after a bit of an aside to see the life of Paul and his conversion, because that'll be significant to the rest of the book of Acts. We come back now to those scattered Christians. And it tells us, at least of this crowd, that had ended up going way up the coast of Israel, kind of into Syria and beyond to this city of Antioch. These followers of the way. Disciples of Jesus Christ have scattered, and they're taking this gospel with them. They're in Antioch. It's a cosmopolitan city, known for its culture, its commerce, its religion. One of the four kind of anchoring cities of the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, Ephesus, and Antioch. Oh, other great cities, but these four rose up from all the others as these massive places of trade, business, commerce, culture, religion. Verse 20, we see some of them are, or verse 19, some of them are speaking the word only to the Jews. We still find this awkward gap between Jew and Gentile. Even the, even the believers haven't quite come to understand what it means that this gospel is for everyone. This barrier of Jew-Gentile is still there, and yet we're going to climb over it. And we know it isn't quite right yet because of the way the text is built for us. Those who were scattered were speaking the word to no one except Jews. That's one bit of information. And then we have this word, but, a word of contrast. Something opposite is coming next. There are those who were only talking to the Jews, but there were some of them, read the rest of the sentence, preaching the Lord Jesus they're speaking to the Hellenists, the Greek cultured people. So some are speaking to just Jews, but the contrast is others were overcoming that barrier in their minds, and they were speaking to the Gentiles as well. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, Jot in the margin if you need to. That word preaching is not the heralding that we associate with pulpit preaching. It's simply the word evangelizing. Or more simply, it's the word good-newsing. They're just spreading good news. And it's good news about who Jesus is and what he can do for sinners. So this church isn't perfect, but they're proclaiming the good news. The church is growing. The church in Jerusalem hears about it, and they send Barnabas to kind of put his eyes on the situation. And we know who Barnabas is. There's a bit of a biography here that we could study, but just kind of file it away with what you know from chapter 4 in Acts, that this guy's name is actually Joseph, but that name is lost to us because of what he does. He is such an encourager. He's so good at coming alongside people and kind of coaching them on to to follow Christ that they nicknamed him the guy about encouragement. Barnabas, that's what it means, the son of encouragement. And now we only know him by that name. If I were to say the guy Joseph in Acts, nobody would know who we're talking about. He's this encourager. And he is sent to the church to do what he does best, to encourage. And part of his encouragement then is going to find Saul, who's added to the team. And we're told when Saul joins the team and begins teaching, we come to that key phrase, the disciples were first called Christians here in Antioch. Then there's a short paragraph at the end about an upcoming famine, this prophet announces this famine that's coming. You can go to the history books and find this famine in the the rule of Claudius, the emperor of Rome, ruled from about 40 to mid-50s AD. And famine was everywhere. Big flood in the Nile destroyed a lot of crops. And so a lot of the food source of this Middle East is gone. Drought in Israel and Judea adds to the famine. So that's That's a real occurrence, and I think it's just there at the end of our story to remind us of who these people are that we're talking about. These disciples that were first called Christians because of the way that they lived and the way they loved each other is kind of fleshed out at the end of the story. The famine comes, and what do they do? They do what Christ followers or Christians do. They just love and serve and give to meet the need. So everything about this story is is helping us define a group of people that before we've known as disciples, the most common word to describe the Christians before they're called Christians, they said they were disciples or followers of the way. They called themselves brother and sister because they recognize we are now sons and daughters of God. But they didn't call themselves Christians, that's unfolding in our story today. What was it about these people in Antioch that warranted a special nickname? And a nickname that came from the non-religious crowd. It wasn't the church in Jerusalem that said, boy, they're doing a great job, let's call them Christians. It seems to be this is the outsider's label for these people. Hence the the structure of they were called by someone else, Christians. What was it about these people that caused neighbors and coworkers to say, we've got a name for you people? It seems that identification with Christ was more important to these disciples in Antioch than any other identification they could have claimed, which is significant in our context of Jew and Gentile conflict and tension. Rising above even that distinction was this identity in Christ. Identity is kind of the structure of your New Testament letters. You see, those associated with the city of Ephesus were called Ephesians. And those who were from the region of Galatia were called Galatians. And those who identified by the mannerisms or the culture of Corinth were called Corinthians. It's just an identification of characteristics, of commonality. And so it was perfectly reasonable for Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians or Grecians to say, these people, they're not really making their identity about where they're from or their culture. It's like they're making their identity all about Christ. We'll just call them Christians as if that's where they're from or that's what they're about or that's what they're known for. Talk to Jessica and you'll hear, I think she's from the South. (laughs) Talk to my dad and you'll think, "Mm, he doesn't sound like he's from the South. He says some words that are kind of weird. Must be from somewhere else. There are little characteristics that that make us think of identities broadly. There were characteristics about these people that led non-believers to say, I don't know what that is, but I keep seeing it. it. It's like you're all from the same place or about the same thing. We're going to call you Christians. People of Christ. Not first and foremost people of a particular city or region, but just people of Christ. That's what you sound like. That's what you look like. You're all the same. You're all about Christ. In Antioch, apparently all these Christians, these believers that came north and started setting up their businesses and buying homes and raising their families and going about life in Antioch, there were these conversations about the teachings of Jesus. There was all this excitement about their story of being rescued by Jesus There were all these good works that were done, as they would say, in the imitation of Jesus. And eventually, someone just said, I I don't know what you people are doing or what you're all about or where you're from, but all I know is that you're just about Jesus. And the label came because of the way they were living their lives day by day. They were characterized not by regional mannerisms or by cultural practices, but they were characterized first and foremost by the life of Christ being lived out through them. So they had this nickname, Christian. Was it derogatory? We don't know. Nothing in History seems to indicate that it was one way or the other. So rather than thinking was it derogatory, just know that it was descriptive. A bystander could just watch this crowd of people, the way they went about marriage and parenting, the way they worked, the way they interacted with neighbors, or the way they met with their gathering of like people, the bystander could just simply look at it and say there's something that I identify as a common denominator in everything they do. They bring it back to what has Christ told them to do. It was descriptive. Is Christian your primary identity? Because it's a name that you must wear rightly. How? How do we rightly wear the name of Christ in this nickname Christian? Well, by looking at our text, I think we can see what inspired the original use of the name. And then we can ask ourselves, how do I rightly wear the name Christian? Let's look at seven answers to this question of how How do we rightly wear the name of Christ? Number one, by sharing the good news of Christ. Verses 19 and 20 give us two key verbs. Speaking and sharing good news. Speaking and sharing good news. In this text, it starts at least with actual words being spoken. I know at times those who aren't as bold in their faith, in their witness, like to say, well, I'll I'll let my good works bring glory to God, Matthew chapter 5, and they can. But you can never escape using your words, speaking about Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Because the text says, this is how the nickname began. All of these people showed up from out of town way down south in Jerusalem, and when they showed up in Antioch, they were all talking about Jesus Christ. So that's the beginning of this name. Whatever else follows in our other six characteristics, it began with a people who showed up in town, made it their home, and they talked about Christ. Still, some spoke only to Jews. We saw that. Others were more indiscriminate, and rightly so. They were understanding this gospel is far more broad than the church of Jerusalem. This is for Jew and Gentile alike. What that shows us in verses 19 and 20 is that this fledgling church is far from perfect. There were deep Rooted prejudices in this church, and it's unfolding still. Some only talk to the Jews, but others, rightly, we're gonna talk to Gentiles as well. You can't use the excuse that when you're a better Christian, you'll talk about Jesus. When you get your life together, or when you get all the answers compiled, then you'll become the great apologist. Well, God hasn't asked you to be a great apologist. He's asked you to be a witness. Just take the stand and open your mouth and say what you know. And if you need to know more, then keep learning. But for now, speak what you know about the goodness and grace of God through Christ to you. That's what they did. They just spoke and it sounded like good news. They were excited and happy about this. So speak of Christ this week not only to the believer, but to the unbeliever. Don't be discriminate about how you speak of God's kindness on this particular day. Speak of his grace, mention his faithfulness, but do it often, because this is what characterized the first Christians. They were sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. How do we rightly wear the name of Christ? Number two, by turning to the Lord. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It's an interesting expression. We would think either one would suffice and often, especially in the book of Acts, turning to the Lord does represent the repentance and the belief. And here we have them both. The believing ones turn to the Lord. By believing, they turned, or by turning, they believed. It kind of lumps them together. But what it does is it reminds us that a life of faith is a life of turning to the Lord. We studied this in the equip hour. We're constantly being drawn away and enticed by the things of the world, by temptation, and yet we turn Continually to the Lord. Obviously for many this was their conversion. This was the moment of turning from sin in repentance to the Lord in faith. They were saved. They became believers. Obviously then, inherent in wearing the name Christian is a clarity in your heart by God's grace and by his confirming Holy Spirit, that you have turned to Christ for salvation from sin, that you're trusting him for everlasting life. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why we have to be discerning when we hear Christian attached to all kinds of people or organizations or even church gatherings. Do they define Christian as... One who has repented of sin and one who is believing in Jesus for the righteousness that they need to stand before God. Because there are churches that have on their sign Christian and are telling people they don't have to repent of sin. They can live in all kinds of sinful lifestyles and it's okay. But it's not. That's not the meaning of Christian. When they When everywhere speaking of Jesus Christ, they spoke of him as Lord. He is the only way by which any of us come to the Father. As a Christian, the compass of your heart needs to be constantly calibrated by the standard of Christ. How do you know that you're doing right? Wednesday afternoon in the decisions you're making. How do you know? By turning to the Lord, by constantly fixing our eyes on him so we know what is true and right. They were first called Christians in Antioch, and these early characteristics were that they spoke about Jesus, and they were the ones testifying of what it means to turn to him to give up on self-righteous efforts, to give up on trying to find satisfaction in, in sinful pleasure, but instead to turn to the Lord and trust Him solely. Will you turn to Him first this week with burdens in every trial? Will you turn to Him in frequent thanksgiving? You know, that—that that is, by the way, why we, pray before we eat? You ever find yourself saying, well, let's, let's pray for this food? Why would we do that, right? What does it need? What are the requests of the food that we would pray for? No, it's because we're just being thankful. We take our example from Christ, who it often says broke bread, blessed, gave thanks, and then they ate. But it doesn't only have to be at mealtimes that we turn to the Lord in thanksgiving. Turn to Him when your child's throwing a fit again that hour and you're kind of at wit's end. I know you could plow through it and make something happen. You fix something, but why not turn to the Lord? That's what Christian means. Your, your Christian identity began by turning to the Lord and it continues by always turning to Him. How is He Lord in this moment? How does He rescue me in this moment? It's who He is. It's who I turn to. But was my turning only once and now I coast through life trying to do the best I can? Or can I? Am I invited to constantly come before this throne of grace to find help? In my moment of need, turn to him again and again this week. It's what Christians do. How do I rightly wear the name of Christian? Number three, by recognizing God's grace. The church sends Barnabas to check out what's going on in Antioch. And verse 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. When he came, he saw the grace of God. It begs the question, how do you see a theological concept like grace? How do you see grace? Can you come to Grace Bible Church and see grace? How? Well, he must have seen the people sharing the good news of Christ. He must have seen people Coming to faith. He must have seen believers exercising wisdom, trying to apply that wisdom of Proverbs, which they would have known, to real life situations so they can get it right. He would have seen the love between these family members, spiritual family members. He would have seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit producing fruit in the lives of the redeemed. I'm sure Barnabas would say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He shows up at Antioch and he he just sees what's going on. He sees a busy mom already making a meal for another mom who just had a baby and thinks, that's the grace of God because she's worn out already. And yet she finds it in her heart to love in a demonstrable way someone else. That's grace. See someone else patient with the shortcomings of a spouse, forgiving. And Barnabas saw that grace and was glad. He was like, yes, God is at work here. This doesn't happen naturally. Naturally, sin infects and destroys. And yet what I'm seeing is growth and strength and maturity. That's grace. And when your children get it right, after all the timeouts or spankings and everything else, see that grace of God in their lives. Recognize it. The narrative is is simple. He came and he saw grace. Do you have that lens? Are you seeing that in your spouse, in your kids, in the other church members, all of whom get it wrong sometimes? But I think you get it wrong. If you can always zoom in on the wrong and you miss the grace. Remember, Barnabas had just stepped on the scene. All he did was kind of look around and see what's going on, and and he just kept seeing grace. Now, one could argue, well, isn't that who Barnabas is? Remember, he's the son of encouragement. He's always seeing the good and, and fanning that flame. Maybe that's not exactly who you are, but we need to get better at seeing this grace. How do we rightly wear the name of Christ? Number four, by rejoicing in God's work. The text goes on to say not only did he see grace, but he was glad. Spiritual growth in others made him glad. When he saw what God was doing in the hearts of other people, it reminded him that there's no greater place to be, then nestled among God's people, all of us heading down this path of becoming more like Christ. He was glad. Yes, it builds on our last point, recognize grace. But then what? Be excited about it. Be glad. Let your Christian life not always be like the teacher with a red pen correcting a research paper, spelling error, Compound sentence, needs a comma, capitalize this, and just marking it all up. And then we live our Christian lives judging everything and then trying to be nice like the teacher did. Uh, nice job, they wrote it right at the top. And you're like, nice job, it's a C plus. Like, I thought it was better than that. We might live our Christian lives and, and we're, we're circling everything with the red pen on everybody, but we're missing God's grace and the joy that is there that there's actually progress and growth. Rejoice in God's work. Barnabas didn't show up as the expert, which, in a sense, he's becoming. Remember, Saul, the persecutor, tried to make his way into the church and find a place among the disciples, and nobody would have him until Barnabas kind of brings him alongside and says, he's with me. And then suddenly Paul gets his foot in the door, begins to grow himself. Who did they need to send to Antioch to see if if things were in shape or could get them in shape? Well, send the guy that's good at that. Barnabas is becoming the expert. But he's not thinking I'm the expert. Barnabas is thrilled to just shine in his gift. I will get there and encourage. I'll do whatever I have to do. He was happy about every part of God's work in Antioch. And listen, encouragement may may not be your most obvious strength. I get that. Some of you are are specially gifted by the Holy Spirit to encourage, to to coach, to give instruction in, in such a, a nice way that people want to hear from you and and they're excited to get on and get it right. That may not be all of you, but we should hear also that pessimism and skepticism and judgmentalism are not fruits of the Spirit. They're not strengths in which we brag. I'm all about realism as opposed to like a flowery optimism. But in our story, we have to recognize these Christians were not perfect. The text began that way. They're they're not good at overcoming prejudice, for one. There's probably a lot of other flaws. And yet Barnabas shows up, and what he sees is not, oh, we've got a lot of work to do. He gets there and he says, what grace. Look at the progress that has been made. You see, both of those positions recognize there's more to do. But one of them sees grace and is glad for it. The other, I'm not sure what it does. I think it says, I know how to fix this, so let's get busy. And that may not always be the first course of action. Take time this week to rejoice in what God does, even in your own heart. You're going to get it right this week by God's grace. Take a moment to be glad in that. The devil's always telling us to take a long moment to despair about our failure. Here, the text is saying, Would you just take a moment to rejoice in God's grace that's evident in your life? That's good news. Barnabas saw the grace and was glad. Be glad for the small steps. This is what Christians do. This kind of glad optimism seems to have infected the church at Antioch so that the outsiders looked on. And this is one of the characteristics that came to mind when they thought of these people. They're joyful because of this understanding of what they call grace. Number five, we rightly wear the name of Christian by committing to intentional godliness. Verse 23, it's wordy, unusually wordy. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now you could scratch a couple of those words and you'd have the same meaning. He exhorted them to steadfast purpose, or he exhorted them to faithfulness, or he exhorted them to remain, but instead he exhorts them to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. That, that's coaching at its finest. It's, it's repetition. It's spelling it out clearly. It's urging them on. It's showing the importance of doing it this way. He wants them to live a godly life on purpose. So we should be asking ourselves questions like, what do I need to add to my day tomorrow? When I wake up and dive into the week, Monday, what do I need to add to my day in order to be faithful to God as a Christian? Or what do I need to take out of my day on Monday, to make sure I'm rightfully wearing this name Christian. Barnabas shows up and he's, and he's encouraging them all to live in such a way that with purpose, they decide how they're going to act. Instead of always reacting to our failures and trying to get it right, where's the intentional purpose to do what is right? I know from personal experience, that Christians can coast in a pretty solid Christianity, right? You, you know that your Christianity feels pretty solid. You, you've got sound doctrine. You've got a pretty good record. You're not ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're, you're, you're generally trying to follow his leading. You're yielding. But there are times where we just don't feel any urgency to be in the word. We dive right into task after task after task. And before the day is gone, we realized there was nothing of continuing in prayer. We were coasting. And it's not that that coasting immediately produced reckless worldly living. But can we say that it was the intentional purpose to which Barnabas was calling the church? Can we say that with steadfast purpose, we chose to remain faithful, to anchor ourselves in this place of obedience? We can't coast. Barnabas would certainly coach us otherwise. He would call us to to press on in steadfast purpose. And I think his disciple, Saul, learned this from Barnabas. So here we have Barnabas, and his main task there was urging people on to steadfast purpose. Is it any wonder that Saul in writing to the church at Philippi, would describe his own Christian life by saying, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where did Paul get that? Well, you could answer rightly from the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. But I think as he was mentored by Barnabas, he heard the son of encouragement again and again tell people, listen, you need to be purposeful about this. It doesn't just happen. The Christian life will not be a stunning success by accident this week. It will be because you chose to be faithful with steadfast purpose. So press for faithfulness. Aim for godliness this week. And if need be, ask others to coach you through it, to cheer you on. Tell them, listen, I need to be in the word more. Would you you be someone I could share what I find with? And now you're on the hook to find something there, to meditate on it and to pass it on to a brother or sister. That's the kind of ministry Barnabas had. And it produced fruit. And that steadfast, faithful purpose became characteristic of these Jesus people so that outsiders said, man, they don't get get bogged down in politics. They don't get bogged down in, in the economy. Though they're there and living through it, they are anchored by and consumed by one thing, the advance of the kingdom. They're all about Christ. Number six, we rightly wear the name Christian by pursuing the church's good, the church's well-being. In 1 Corinthians twelve 7, we're told that we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit for the church's common good. God has the goodness of his church in mind. And he's so concerned about it that he keeps adding to it more gifts and more abilities in you, the members, the body of the church. It's for the common good. And what we see in our story is this. Verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Why that conclusion? Something happened before that leads Barnabas to say, I'm going to get Saul. It's more than just an and. It's not just another fact, but it's a result. So what came before? Verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. In other words, the church is blossoming. And there's all these people that have come to faith in Christ and they need to be taught. The result is Barnabas says, we need more. We need more gifts of teaching. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's 100 miles one way. He goes and gets him. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Notice that same expression. A great many were added to the church a few verses before, and now they're teaching that great many people. But the beautiful thing here is Barnabas who wasn't claiming to be the expert anyway, says, you know what? I'm not the guy here to get that done. I shine at encouragement, and I can come along and do some coaching, but I'm I'm not the, the theologian kind of teacher to stand up and educate the masses on how the Old Testament has led us to Christ and everything they need to be taught, or at the very least, I need help with that. I don't need to be the hero. I'm not the rescuer. Jesus is, and I need someone else to help these people learn that. And so he goes and gets Saul. He's all about the church's good. It's a beautiful picture to leave this body for a moment, knowing that for their good, he's going to bring more gifts to the church. How are you contributing to the common good of the church? You may not be the teacher that Saul was. You might be the encourager. You might not want to teach from a podium or in a crowd of 100 or even 10, but you sure don't mind having lunch with somebody, hearing their heartaches, and bearing those burdens. Then do that. God has designed you individually for the common good of this local body and for the good of the kingdom. That's that's good news. Finally, see that we rightly wear the name Christian by studying God's word. Verse 26, Saul and Barnabas met with these believers and taught them intentionally for a year. A whole year committed to understanding what we need to know. They kept learning. They kept studying. And what is it they're studying? Essentially, they are mastering the story of Christ. How does the Old Testament point to him? And what do we know from his few short years of his teaching ministry? They were learning of Christ. What did he teach? What did he promise What does his lordship mean? Why do we call him Lord? What does worshiping Christ look like? What does the imitation of Christ look like? And the result of the word of God dwelling in them richly was this. Christ was seen in such a way, the way they lived, the way they talked, the way they worked, the way they played, the way they went about business and politics and marriage and church, the way these people existed reminded the unbelievers of what little they knew of that one called Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. They said, these people remind me of him. Just call them Christians. And the culture We're told, the outsiders described them as being consumed with all things Christ. May God help us to wear the name of Christ in such a way as Acts 11 unfolds that people may not know what we mean when we speak of Baptist distinctives. They may not know what the name Grace Bible Church represents in doctrine. They may not know much doctrine at all about who Jesus is. But they would know that what you're about, what you love, what you're committed to, what you prioritize, what you seek first has something to do with Jesus. We have to love Christ and talk about him. We have to be saturated with his truth. We have to resemble him in the way we think and speak. That's what we see in Acts 11. The early Christians were all about Christ, and it was not lost on their community. Too many of us are flying stealthily through our lives, and nobody knows what we're all about, at least what we say we're all about. Oh, they they may know what we love in our hobbies. They might know, you know, that we have the chief's pennant hanging from the garage. They might know that we love a pristine lawn. They might know that we make a little more money than they do because they see the car we drive or something. They might have some kind of biography, their shaping of you, that person across the street from them. But do they know what you're really all about? And if not then this week in this beautiful summer season is this time to start building that bridge that you're going to walk across and show them clearly one day from the Bible itself exactly who Jesus is and what he can do for them. That may take weeks. might only take hours or moments. You don't know. You just know that God calls you to be a witness to them. You see, eventually, and it's happening in our culture, a shallow, nominal Christianity is just going to get swallowed up in the pagan culture around us. Because they don't want to be distinct. They want to fit in. And if they stand for nothing, then they'll fit right in with the world. And it will be those who are distinctly Christian who will now have a light to shine in darkness. And that's what this text is really all about. Remember, our theme of the book of Acts is the advance of the kingdom. This little story isn't just a feel-good story about, hey, if you live right, you know, you'll, you can wear the name of Christ. No, it's about the advance of the kingdom. It's about darkness, seeing light, and recognizing it as the light of Christ. Those people are all about Christ. May our lights shine this week like the lights of a city set on a hill. It can't be missed. Let your light shine. Heavenly Father, bless your word to us in this way that we, like these early believers, would wear the name of Christ well this week, that something of these seven characteristics would be true in our lives. That we would take steps this week to be intentional about our witness to the good and gracious God who has rescued us from sin. Thank you for so great a salvation that is ours through Jesus. Thank you for the commands that we receive in Scripture that are not a burden to us, but they are the commands that steer us down a path toward joy. Give us faith to believe that this week, your will for us is to walk obediently and to witness boldly. So take your word and bring it to our minds often this week. Our week will be busy. Our responsibilities will be many. The burdens will be heavy. But we we'll May we know the sufficient grace of God and be glad for it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.